0: Good morning. One ancient hope. It is good to see a few more people in here. It's wonderful to be able to uh, preach to people in person, but also welcome to those who are joining to be a live stream again. Every breath is a resurrection, says the poet Gregory Orr. Every breath is a resurrection. Breathe, just breathe, calm down, just take some deep breaths, right? Isn't that how we're taught to address any anxious person in our midst? Just, just breathe, just calm down, take some breaths. Uh, in a magazine interview, the busy actress and mother, Nicole Kidman, she said that the coping mechanism she tells herself is breathe and don't try to be perfect. As it turns out, that popular suggestion is an effective one. Breathing deeply can relieve stress as much as professional spa treatments like massages can, according to a study from the Group Health Research Institute. So breathe, just breathe. Might be a little harder with a mask on, but just breathe. My watch, my watch alerts me multiple times a day. Uh, Take a minute to concentrate on some deep breathing, it says. It buzzes on my wrists. Well, thank you, watch, for reminding me to breathe. I might have forgotten without you. It's so simple that it can sound foolish, silly, stupid. Even do I really need to be reminded to breathe? Now, if it wasn't for the fact that I noticeably feel better when I do it, I'd be pretty skeptical, right? But when I listen to my watch, I notice myself feeling less anxious, more connected to my body. Uh, My mind becomes less foggy. I even get a little more creative. So I breathe. I just breathe. Should someone have told Martha... To take a few deep breaths, just breathe, Martha. She comes to Jesus anxious and distracted. He could have just said, Martha, Martha, take a few deep breaths and get back to work. You'll be fine. You just need to calm down. Have you ever gone to a friend while you were anxious or worried, feeling stressed out, and all they told you was, just take a few deep breaths? be fine. How'd that go? Now, while it's usually the first thing that we might say to someone to calm them down, just breathe. It's going to be the last thing that I say in this sermon as well. Breathe. So spoiler alert, that's going to be the application. That's what the next 25 minutes is getting to. Breathe. All right, let's turn to our story. We're in Luke chapter 10. We are beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. The name Martha in the Aramaic is related to the same word for master. Master. Um, which just kind of adds to what's already evident in the story. And that's that Martha is likely the householder here. It says that she invited Jesus into her house. That means she's probably a widow, but we don't know for sure. Perhaps it just means that she's the elder sister. Um, Either way, Martha welcomes Jesus into her house which in the gospel text, that's always a bit of a foretelling that something important is going to happen. Because wherever Jesus is welcomed, transformation follows. You might uh, fast forward to a little bit later in the gospel of Luke, when Jesus goes into a man named Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus is this tax collector hated by many. When Jesus comes into his house, Zacchaeus responds by giving half of his possessions away, And paying back anyone he owes four times over. And Jesus says to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house today. Because wherever Jesus is welcomed, transformation follows. You cannot truly encounter Christ and not go away changed. So from the first verse of this story, we know this is a story about sacred hospitality about hosting Jesus properly and what happens when we let him in. Continuing to the next verse, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary takes up this position as a student with a rabbi. She sets herself in to listen to Jesus. And this is how Mary in the story chooses to host Jesus. This is how she shows hospitality by being present to the guest. Rabbi Yosef ben Yoser, a contemporary of Jesus, he said this great little quote: He says, Let thy house be a meeting house for the sages, and sit amidst the dust of their feet and drink in their words with thirst. You see, the, the practice of the day was that the teacher, a, a rabbi, would sit on a chair and everyone else would place themselves at his feet. They would literally sit on the floor, usually on dust, and they would listen as that rabbi recited the Torah and gave their explanation. Paul says so much in Acts. He says that he used to sit at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel, Now, the fact that Mary, a woman, is sitting at Jesus' feet is scandalous for this time in history. Only men were allowed to receive this kind of direct teaching from a rabbi. Some scholars, as I was reading, they believe that the whole reason Martha was upset actually had to do with Mary breaking these social rules. It's embarrassing to Martha This is her house and her little sister is breaking these social rules to go and sit with Jesus. Martha, as the older sister, wants to make sure that she's receiving Jesus properly, that she's a good host. But Mary ruins it. She throws a stick in the spokes of any way that Martha thought that she could control the situation. And so we learn in the next verse that Martha was distracted with much serving. I mean, here's where most of us, if we're honest, can relate to Martha. I mean, any of those sayings, are you a Mary or a Martha? We're all Marthas. Let's be real. If we're honest, right? I mean, hosting is no small feat. And on top of that, we live in this age of distraction. There are so many, many things to worry about. And one of the most notable characteristics of worrying is that it fragments our lives. And it's this tyranny of the urgent is what it gets called. The many things to do, to think about, to plan for the many people to remember, to visit or to talk with the many causes to attack or defend all of these pull us apart and we lose our center. Worrying causes us to be all over the place, but seldom at home. It's impossible to host if you're not at home. One way to express the spiritual crisis of our time is to say that most of us have an address, but we cannot be found there. We know where we belong, but we keep being pulled away in so many directions as if we're still homeless. So allowed in its own sort of natural way, life in the world with its multiple concerns, it captures us, causing us to feel stressed and fragmented, pulled apart. Martha, the text says, was distracted. She was fragmented into pieces with much serving. Is what it says. I mean, we should note here that the Greek word for serving is diakoneo, which is where we get the word deacon from, if you're in a church tradition that uses that word, uh, which is usually also translated as ministering. The idea is that Mary is distracted with doing something good. I mean, the verses right before this story is the story of the good Samaritan. So Jesus is not saying that serving and loving is bad. It's a good thing. But she's distracted with something good. She's not distracted because she's trying to figure out, when can I find the right time where Jesus leaves his wallet on the table and I can maybe take a few bucks? She's not distracted because she's thinking about This Jesus, he's pretty cute. Maybe I could seduce him or something. She's not distracted by any sort of obviously evil malintent. She's distracted by trying to feed him, trying to show love and hospitality. She's distracted by good Christian values. And I wonder how many of us, myself included, Distract ourselves from the presence of God with something good. Remember, Martha is trying to be a good host, and it is completely backfiring on her. Have you ever been invited into someone's house only to have them be distracted? Maybe they were cooking a complex recipe. They know that you're really into food, so they're going to make the best thing tonight, but then they end up spending the whole time in the kitchen, never talking with you. Or maybe for no fault of their own, their kids are extremely fussy that night, and it takes them an hour or two to get them to bed, so you actually never see that person. You just see perhaps their spouse or their friend that night. Or maybe their favorite team was playing that night. And so in between, it seems like every sentence you tell them, they're checking the score on their phone. I've been a guest in situations like that. I'm sure you have too. And it it feels terrible. It feels crappy. It's like, why did you invite me over in the first place? Now, here's the thing. While it's less than ideal to be the host or to be the, the, the guest, to be on the receiving end of poor hospitality. It also stings, perhaps more, if after a night of hosting someone, you realize, I actually missed out on any interaction with that person because I was distracted. I think Martha must have had some sense that she was failing at her plan to love Jesus. She was feeling this sting of distraction, of missing out on what she was actually inviting into her house. And it provoked her to reach out to her guest. I'm imagining she had some cocktail going on inside her of embarrassment, anxiety, anger, shame, who knows what else, but it pushes her to get up and go to Jesus and ask still in verse 40, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Lord, do you not care? You see, the brilliance of Martha here is that she lets her worry, her anxiety, her anger, her embarrassment. She lets it all drive her, propel her to Jesus. Asking him the questions so many of us are afraid to offend him with. Lord, do you not care? Lord, do you not care that systems of injustice and racism plague the minorities in our country? Lord, do you not care that hurricanes and tornadoes and derechos destroy? They devastate your world and your people. Lord, do you not care that I haven't been able to interact with friends and family in a way that's meaningful for over seven months now? What I would do for a hug. Lord, do you not care that I haven't had income for months, you might ask? Lord, do you not care that I've had to pick up the slack of my coworkers for the past year? Lord, do you not care that I'm trying everything I possibly can And nothing seems to work. Lord, do you not care that I'm lonely? Lord, do you not care that I'm tired? Lord, do you not care that I'm scared? Martha brings her questions directly to Jesus. Lord, do you not care? I think at the core of any of our worries lies this same question. Do you not care, Lord? And it's important not to skip this step and jump to some happy ending. Because here's the thing I've talked with some of you, I know some of you are completely, absolutely overwhelmed. By no fault of your own. You're balancing too many plates. It's just the way it is this season for you. And I know that some of you might feel that the good Christian thing to do is grin and bear it. Just suppress this stress and get it done. Sure, you're busy, but I mean, God must be busy too. So let's not bother him. Maybe you don't even feel like you have the time to ask this sort of question of God. Or you're afraid for what the answer might be. Lord, do you not care? Martha is right to bring her anxiety to Jesus. She shows us that worry and anxiety can be invitations back into the presence of God. Again, verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, being Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You see, Martha is right. She's correct in trying to be hospitable. She's right to bring her anxiety to Jesus. But in trying to love him, she begins casting her anxiety onto Mary as well, not just onto Jesus. Her tone, I imagine here, becomes sort of manipulative and controlling. She demands that Jesus tells Mary to help. And I think many of us, we not only question the caring benevolence of God, but like Mary or like Martha, we refuse to see his care if it doesn't show up in the way we want. Martha doesn't simply ask Jesus for help. She doesn't just come to him with her doubts. She demands that Jesus give her Mary to help. She lets comparison creep in. She lets manipulation, she lets her well intentioned love become poisoned by anxiety. There's a story from the American public radio show and podcast This American Life from a few years ago about a young woman named Rebecca Gee. And what happens is she loses her mother to cancer when she's just 16, which is terrible. But before her mother died, she planned for a way to still be in her daughter's life. Even after she was gone, she, she wrote these letters and there was supposed to be one for every year, one for every birthday that Rebecca could open up even after her mother passed. I mean, isn't this beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? So thoughtful, so intentional, even in a time of death. Now, though these letters were certainly intended to be messages of love and encouragement for her daughter that she obviously wished she could see grow up, they began to feel more burdensome than anything. Rebecca's mother was a devout Mormon, and she would continually bring up in these letters marrying the right man. But she also had these sort of barbed expectations and about career choices, Right? about what it means to have a fulfilling life. In one of her letters, she asked her daughter, quote, are you contemplating a dissertation? Interviewing with scientific laboratories or NASA? How about traveling to exotic places? You can see that she wants her daughter to have a good life, but it was as if there was judgment rearing up from the grave. And so Rebecca in the uh, radio show says this, I remember at age 21 thinking, man, do I have to open up one of these this year? This is tough. I don't want to do it. And I felt guilty, she says. I remember feeling like if I didn't open it up, I would really disappoint her. And yet, then I open it up, and it's all about, quote, I hope you marry a Mormon man. And I hope you go to the temple. And if you don't go to temple, you won't go to heaven. You're not going to see me then. And I'm not doing those things, says Rebecca. And that's a pretty hard thing to hear on your birthday. Martha has become like Rebecca's mom. And the reality is that it happens to me. And I'd venture to guess it happens to you. Our acts of love, so easily bound to our worry, wind up shortchanging us from love itself. As much as Rebecca's mother intended love, her love was instead a channel for her own fears. Similarly, as much as Martha wishes she could sit at Jesus's feet, her anxious love will not let her. There are things to do. Jesus, don't you see there are things to do? Can't you see I'm loving you too, Jesus? She asks Jesus to validate her activity. And you'll notice in our text that Jesus never answers Jesus. Martha's request for help. No, he doesn't answer it, saying, yes, I'll help you. No, I won't. He responds in an entirely other way, in a way filled with more compassion and wisdom than she could have expected. You see, the story asks us, like it asks both Mary and Martha, are we hospitable to salvation? How do we welcome Christ as guest and Lord at the same time? It's by listening at his feet as a disciple. If we do not carve out space to listen to the voice of God, we will fill that space with our own voice, with our own worry, our own ways we think things should be done. We'll actually create and engage in more work than God ever asks of us. We'll create more things to do than God's voice is actually calling us to do. St. Augustine put it this way All the time I wanted to stand and listen, to listen to your voice, God. But I could not because another voice, the voice of my ego, dragged me away. And the ancient biblical proverb says it like this, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Jesus' response to Martha's demands needs to be heard, therefore, as kind words that cheer up a heavy, anxious heart. So let's listen to Jesus' voice instead of our own, in verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You've probably heard these words before. If you've been in church, even if you haven't, but do we hear Jesus's words to Martha as good and kind as the kind of words, which lift up an anxious heart or do we hear them as harsh and destructive is Jesus rebuking Martha? Or is he inviting her into something more? Because if our image of Jesus, if our image of God is wrong, then we will always receive his words improperly. Words which were meant as a gift, all of a sudden they become judgment and condemnation. The double Martha, Martha here, it's a literary scheme to show love, and affection towards the one you are speaking towards, particularly if the words following it might come off as harsh, if they're harder words. Jesus says in the Gospels, as he's talking to Peter, Simon, Simon, he gives this double name. In Acts 9, when Jesus sees Paul for the first time, or Saul at the time, he greets him and says, Saul, Saul because he's about to take away his sight. Something hard is about to happen, but he's letting you know that it's coming out of a place of love. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks over the city of Jerusalem, and he speaks these sort of uh, intense words, but he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. To say someone's name twice is a way to pull one in deeper. It's an invitation to further intimacy that sets up what's coming next. I have such a callous heart that it takes more than once for Jesus to cut through it and address my soul. But Jesus is able to cut through it. He gets to the root of all of our existential angst. And he shows that there is no need for the amount of space we carve out for anxiety, worry, or righteous indignation. Jesus is the only one who sees without a stick in his eye. He sees clearly. And that's why he's able to answer Martha's request with a diagnosis of her soul. You are anxious, and troubled about many things. He tells her one thing is necessary, and Mary chose it. Jesus is able to address our frantic and frenetic doing unlike anyone else, because his kingdom is defined differently. In his kingdom, your worth is not defined by what you've done, not what you're doing, not even what you're planning to do. It's defined by the simple non-act of kneeling before him and receiving. This is Mary's socially improper indulgence. She's just going to sit and receive when she's supposed to be hosting. She's supposed to be providing, but she just receives. And this offends Martha. And if we're honest, this offends us too, right? means All of our hard work and dedication, it just gets bleached out before God. Mary gets the fullness of Christ and she's done nothing to deserve it. It's not fair. But Christ speaks and says, listen, if the world tells you that your frenetic activity is saving you, I'm telling you, it's killing you. Sit down, don't do a thing, I'm doing it all. How does this good news hit you? I've been using anxiety and worry sort of interchangeably. That's not really correct. Uh, There's certainly overlap, but there's also a difference. Here's three quick differences. We're, We're coming to an end, don't you worry. We tend to experience worry in our heads and anxiety in our bodies. So, worry tends to be more about our thoughts, frantic thoughts, thinking of possible scenarios, playing out worst case scenarios. Anxiety is more visceral. Sometimes we don't even know what it is we're, we couldn't articulate it with words, but you feel it in your body. Right? Worry tends to be more specific, while anxiety is more diffuse. An example, we might worry about going to the airport, because we're worried we might not get there on time, or we might have forgotten a certain thing in our suitcase. That's worry. But we might feel anxious about traveling. It's It's a vaguer, more general concern, not particularized. Now also important is that worry is considered a normative psychological state while anxiety is not. So in certain intensities and duration, anxiety is considered a true mental disorder, one that requires psychological treatment and or medication. So just to be clear, I'm not suggesting prayer instead of medication. If you struggle With debilitating panic attacks and anxiety, you should see a therapist. Seek healing. And like all of us, you should pray as well. You see, worry and anxiety are not your enemy, they're actually an invitation to commune with God in prayer. Now, The next two weeks as well, we'll be talking about worry. And I don't want to just sort of leave you with these words, even though from Christ there are these words of life. But I want to give you a practice. There's a particular practice of prayer that addresses both worry and anxiety. And that's because it quiets our thoughts, but also eases stress stored in our body. Every breath. Is a resurrection. So I told you that I would end the sermon talking about breath. And I will. Just breathe. And pray. I want to tell you about breath prayer. Breath prayer has been practiced in the church uh, for millennia. It's a form of prayer that's linked to the rhythms of our breathing. It's prayer that's focused on being with God, much like Mary was, to awaken us to his presence in all things. These are short little prayers, um, and it allows us to be released from thinking too much in our prayer or about praying the right words, being in our heads too much as we pray. The Hebrew word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach, which also gets translated as breath or wind. The same is true in the new Testament with the word for spirit. Pneuma gets translated as breath. The images of the Holy Spirit's presence as wind and breath, which is important. The spirit is invisible and like the wind, we cannot control him, but the spirit is also imminently present like our own breath, dwelling within us. Breath prayer helps us practice this reality. Let's see. Any short scripture or heartfelt prayer will work as a breath prayer. There's some that are more ancient, like the Jesus prayer you can look into. But this is what I'd give you some encouragement towards. Maybe when you find yourself anxious or worried, you might want to pray the last words of Christ on the cross in Luke 23, 46. I mean, these words could even be considered a breath prayer by Jesus himself. It says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And as he said this, he breathed his last. Essentially, with that last pneuma, breath, I give you my pneuma, spirit. So on the inhale, you might say, Father, into your hands. On the exhale, I commit my spirit. I mean, this is a way of giving complete control, trust, and faith over to God with your whole self. You, if you're doing this, you want to take some, some full, deep breaths with your diaphragm. Not just into your chest, but full body. Maybe when you do it, you'll notice how you feel. You'll notice if you're carrying tension in your chest. Maybe there's some anxiety you couldn't even name before that you're recognizing. Maybe you notice that your heart is beating strong and you actually feel healthy. And you realize, wow, God is so much more present and in control than I realized. Maybe you begin to notice that the question Martha asks, Lord, don't you care? Is actually deep within you. And when these moments arise in you, remember they're invitations to sit at Jesus' feet. So you might wanna pray something simple in those moments. God is right here, right now. Maybe that's your breath prayer. Just to remind yourself in the anxious moment, God is present. For me, and the reason that I chose this text in the first place is I found it extremely helpful to pray by listening to these words, um, the words that Jesus gives Martha. And I've been praying on my breath, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew you are worried about many things. And on the exhale, but one thing is necessary. And It's been really powerful for me to admit the the truth, the reality, that there are many things that sneak into my mind and in my body that make me feel anxious or worried. But as I exhale and let it go, I remember only one thing is necessary, and that's Christ and his presence. And as a child of God, I actually have that accessible to me. Two more options that you might want to pray as breath prayers come from our psalm today. Verse one would be powerful, right? The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Just letting that reality sink into your body. Or perhaps when you find yourself distracted, fragmented, pulled about, you just come back and say, like verse 8, your face, Lord, do I seek. Look, it's your prayer. The idea is that it's short and sincere and simple, and that it can fit rhythmically within deep breaths. The breathing is helpful, but the power is that it's prayer. And we have a God who listens. Breath prayer communicates to us the reality of the gospel, right? The lesson here is that there's no way to earn the presence of God or to work or strive your way out of worry. There's a givenness to our breath. It's going to keep happening whether you think about it or try to do it or not. It's involuntary, but there's also no life apart from it. This is the reality of God's love towards us in the cross. It's the one thing necessary that Mary chooses, and it will not be taken away from us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.